Well, could you turn with me to Mark's Gospel? Um, I know the sheet says to John, that's my mistake. But Mark chapter 1, last week we finished the Gospel of Matthew. And over the summer we're going to be looking at some Psalms, 3 till September. But today I want to think a little bit about prayer. So it's something of a one-off, but we'll also introduce uh, a series on Psalms, which are in many ways the, the prayer book of the Bible. So I'm going to read today from uh, Mark 1, and I'm going to read from verse 29. We're at the beginning of Jesus' ministry. He's just begun healing, uh, driving out demons. So Mark 1, 29. And immediately he, that's Jesus, left the synagogue and entered the house of Simon and Andrew with James and John. Now Simon's mother-in-law lay ill with a fever, and immediately they told him about her. And he came and took her by the hand and lifted her up, and the fever left her, and she began to serve them. That evening at sundown, they brought to him all who were sick or oppressed by demons, and the whole city was gathered together at the door. And he healed many who were sick with various diseases and cast out many demons, And he would not permit the demons to speak because they knew him. And rising very early in the morning, while it was still dark, he departed and went out to a desolate place. And there he prayed. And Simon and those who were with him searched for him. And they found him and said to him, everyone is looking for you. And he said to them, let us go on to the next towns that I may preach there also. For that is why I came. And he went throughout all Galilee, preaching in their synagogues and casting out demons. And a leper came to him, imploring him and kneeling, said to him, If you will, you can make me clean. Moved with pity, he stretched out his hand and touched him and said to him, I will be clean. And immediately the leprosy left him and he was made clean. And Jesus sternly charged him and sent him away at once and said to him, See that you say nothing to anyone, but go, show yourself to the priest and offer for your cleansing what Moses commanded for proof to them. But he went out and began to talk freely about it and to spread the news so that Jesus could no longer openly enter a town, but was out in desolate places. And people were coming to him from every quarter. And when he returned to Capernaum after some days, it was reported that he was at home and many were gathered together so that there was no more room, not even at the door. And he was preaching the word to them. And when they came, bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. And when they could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And when they'd made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, son, your sins are forgiven. Now, some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts. Why does this man speak like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And immediately Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned within themselves, said to them, why do you question these things in your heart? Which is easier to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven Or to say, rise, take up your bed and walk. But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed and go home. And he rose 
and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them all. So they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, we have never seen anything like this. I've said already, I want to speak this morning about prayer. And depending on who you are, I suspect that's provoked one of two responses. If you're a Christian, for many of us, that will provoke a slightly kind of sinking feeling. Uh, There are a few subjects in the Christian life that induce us to feel guilt more quickly than that of prayer. We know we ought to be doing it. We've heard the stories about the kind of the good and the great of the past who rose at 4 a.m. and prayed for three hours before breakfast. And we feel like we fall far short. Uh, Others of you, you're not quite sure whether you really believe all this Christian stuff yet anyway, or maybe some of you are pretty sure you don't. And therefore, the thought of having to listen to someone talk about prayer uh, seems like, well, we might as well listen to someone speak about the tooth fairy, uh, the Easter bunny, Santa Claus. What possible relevance has this to my life? Let me just address you first if you're in that second group. I want to suggest to you that actually all human beings irrepressibly, unavoidably, at some point in their life, find themselves praying. A few years ago, I came across a a prayer uh, someone showed me. It's a prayer from about the 7th century BC. Uh, And ancient uh, Assyria, uh, they dug it up on a kind of carved on on a tablet. And it's become known as the prayer to every God. It's the prayer of someone who was desperately confused about who God was or if there was a God who was up there, but he sensed, he sensed there was something. He just didn't know who. And he sensed that he'd annoyed this God. The prayer begins, may the God who is unknown to me be pacified. Children, to be pacified just means um, be peaceful towards me. May, may he, he calm down, not be angry with me. May the goddess who is unknown to me be pacified. He's not sure if it's a God or a goddess. So he's praying to both just in case. May the known and the unknown God be pacified. May the known and unknown goddess be pacified. He knows there's something there, probably he who wrote it, we don't know, but in those days, most likely. There's someone up there. He knows that something's gone wrong. He knows he needs to call on them, but he just doesn't know how to. He goes on. The sin which I've committed, I know not. The iniquity which I've done, I know not. The offence which I've committed, I know not. The transgression I've done, I know not. I've obviously done something wrong, he says, presumably because something's gone wrong in his life. He senses that the God, the goddess, the gods, the goddesses, the life force, the universal spirit, whoever it is out there is angry with him. He's done something wrong, but he doesn't know what. At this stage, you might be saying, well, I'm nothing like that person. I've never prayed in my life. I never call out to the unknown God or goddess. But but I I suggest to you that that all of us, all of us human beings at times, particularly when we're hard pressed, when the storms of life begin to break over us, the waves come crashing down, all of us unavoidably, instinctively look to something bigger than us. We, We cry out. We sense something's wrong. We sense that we're too small, too weak to deal with it. And so before we even catch ourselves, we've kind of prayed. The results envelope comes through. It's probably online now, isn't it? Um, Union results came out this week, I think, if they managed to actually publish them. I know some of you, they never quite got to uh, 
putting them online, so apologies if that's you. But before you click on the, you know, before you click on the link, instinctively, p- please be this what I hoped for. I'm talking to you even if you're not a Christian. Someone gets ill and you find yourself saying, please get better. Who are you speaking to? Please will you ask me? Human beings throughout history have deep down felt this need to call on someone or something bigger than themselves. And for those of you who are Christians, you know this ought to, this ought to be the pattern of your life. Perhaps you know Paul's command, pray continually. So what I want to do this morning is, is not so much to guilt trip you about not praying enough, but in God's mercy, excite us. Excite us with the good news, if you're not a Christian, that there is a God who's revealed himself, a God to whom you can call on, you can pray, even today. There is a force, a being, a power out there who is infinitely greater than you and is so full of love, he will listen to you, even for the first time today. And if you are a Christian, to excite you about prayer. You might pray even now, quickly, in your head, that the Lord deals with us in that way. I want to do this by looking uh, at Jesus, particularly Jesus in Mark 1. First thing, first amazing thing I think we see is simply that Jesus himself prays. Jesus himself prays. Verse 35, rising very early in the morning while it was still dark, he departed, went to a desolate place. Children's means a quiet place, a desert place probably. And there he prayed. Jesus, God in the flesh, praise why is that so surprising you say well he's a holy man of course he prays it's surprising i think because here we have a perfect man the only perfect man who's ever walked the face of the planet he is the perfect sinless man never done anything wrong said anything wrong felt anything wrong he is everything humanity is meant to be and yet he knows he's meant to rely on well rely on god now i know jesus is also god in the flesh some of you thinking well is this god praying to god what we're being presented here is jesus the true man jesus is really human not pretend human it's not just that it's sort of he's God, really, who put on a kind of skin suit. I once heard a preacher in America. I was over in New York and I heard a preacher get very excited and say, God himself slipped on a skin suit and came down to earth. OK, that's an exciting line, but totally rubbish theology. Um, he didn't just put on a sort of suit like some sort of Scooby-Doo villain. The real, really a God and just sort of pretending to be a man. No, he really is a man as much as he is really God. It's one of the incredible things about the incarnation, about the Christmas story. So here is a perfect man, but even if you were perfect as a human being, man or woman, you are made to rely to bring all your burdens to the God who is your father. That is what true human flourishing looks like. We're just not meant to stand on our own two feet. All these kind of pop culture narratives that tell us to be strong, to stand up, not to rely on everyone else, to be captain of your own soul, master of your own destiny. It's total nonsense, and if we're honest, we know it. You know that there is loads in this world, in this universe, that is far, far more powerful than you are. You know you cannot achieve anything you want. You cannot be who you want to be. There's simply too much out there to oppose you. 
perfect man, and yet still he prays. He's also a powerful man. Uh, the reason we read, or I read out, uh, more than just the, kind of the verse on Jesus praying is because it gives us just a little taste of what Jesus has been doing. See how he is able to, to drive out demons. He's able to heal all sorts of diseases. Verse 34 tells us many different diseases, many different people, all sorts of sicknesses, and he can heal them all. A leper comes to him, and with a touch, it's gone. Here is a man, if any man, who is powerful, more powerful than the forces that stand against him. And yet still he prays. Still he prays. The most powerful man to walk the planet. The one who can walk on water and not sink. Who can get hold of some jugs of water and make sure they turn into never running out wine. The one who, who can feed 5,000 people with a handful of loaves and a few fish. The one who can stop the storm. Still he prays. One of the reasons we don't pray is because we're so proud. We think we can stand on our own feet. We think we can walk tall. Jesus himself looks upwards. He's a perfect man, but he prays. A powerful man, but he prays. He's also, if you uh, pardon the alliteration, he's a pestered man. See that? I had to reach for that one a bit, but still. A pestered man or oppressed man, if you like. Verse 33, the whole city was gathered together at his door. That evening at sunset, verse 32, they brought him all who were sick or oppressed. They're just crushing in on him. Imagine how many ill people. You hear Jesus is in town and he can, he can heal you. He can heal your mom, your dad, your brother, your sister, your daughter, your neighbor. You are going to get there, aren't you? And so they do, pressing in on him. When he gets to the house with the story of the paralytic, there's no room in the house because people are pressing in. Jesus is not some holy man who lives... On a mountaintop, you know, up in the Himalayas, in a cave, meditating, quiet, calm, all the time in the world to give himself to God. Nor is he some kind of monk withdrawn from the world in a monastery. He is a busy man. There are a thousand things he could be doing. And those things are good things. It's a good thing, obviously, for him to be healing the sick, the blind, the lame, the deaf, the dumb. Cleansing lepers, raising the dead. They are brilliant things to be doing, very obviously. And yet still he withdraws to pray. To put it really bluntly, busyness for Jesus is not a reason not to pray. Even for Jesus, with all his perfection and all his power. He is pressed, pestered. But his reaction... Rising early in the morning, still dark, finds a quiet place and prays. What would it look like for you? Many of you are hard pressed and pestered. Children, babies keep me up all night. Stresses of work, studies, whatever it may be. What would it look like for you to find that quiet place? Even if it was just for, for five minutes daily. We can pray spontaneously any time. We're going to come on to that. But I think modelled by Jesus and indeed by the Old Testament saints. And in the experience of, frankly, Christians, thousands, millions of Christians down the centuries ever since. 
planning our time to go and pray, some dedicated time of prayer before the Lord, is an absolute necessity if it's ever going to happen. So let me ask you again, what would it like for you? Where is that time? Let's say it's just five minutes in your day. Let me speak to you. Those of you who are totally out of the habit of praying, let's say it was just five minutes. Where would you find that five minutes? Where in terms of your diary? And where physically, where would you go? Uh, someone told me, and I, I don't know if this is true or not, but it's a great story, so I'll share it anyway. Someone told me that the Wesley's mum, John and Charles Wesley, the great evangelist, um, loads of kids running around the house, godly woman, uh, c- couldn't get any space, not like they lived in some great mansion where she could retire to her kind of sitting room or something. She used to flip her apron over her head uh, and just, just find some quiet time. Kids, every, you know, little John and Charles, and goodness knows how many others, scuttling around. So apron over the head, she's created her own little kind of safe space, and there she goes, she's praying. It might be like that for you at the moment, particularly, let me talk to you, if you're a mom of small children at the moment, it is desperately hard work. Uh, exhausting. But you don't need to plan to be a sort of total hero straight up, praying 30 minutes, 40 minutes, 50 minutes, an hour, two hours, whatever story from church history terrifies you. Uh, this morning I got up and, and wandered around uh, the park near our house, uh, and at one point a bunch of runners came past, um, all the kids, you know, the lycra and the, the jogging vests, and um, they were clearly kind of racing each other a little bit. It was a running club. And then about 300 yards behind, they all overtook me. I was just walking. About 300 yards behind, puffed this guy. He was wearing kind of dad shorts, like khaki shorts, not runner shorts, um, just a sort of normal T-shirt. He was clearly part of the group, but absolutely miles behind them. And fair play to him. Fair play to him, I thought. Maybe it's just sympathy, you know, kicking in, just identifying. Um, he, he, he was no athlete. He wasn't going to be winning any of those races. But off he went anyway. Uh, you may not be the greatest prayer warrior on the earth, but what would it look like to carve out five minutes? Start with five, and maybe, maybe it will then grow to seven and ten. But start with five. What would it look like? And where would you find it? Even Jesus prays. And although Jesus is much more than an example to us, he's not less than an example. The perfect, powerful, hard-pressed man found the time. In many ways, it is an example of taking up our cross, isn't it? Almost certainly, unless you've got all the time in the world, almost certainly something else will have to die in order that you might find that time to come before the Lord. It might be a bit of sleep. It might be a bit of Netflix. I don't know what it might be. But almost certainly something else will have to give. But that's okay because dying is the route to life in the Bible, isn't it? We take up our cross and follow him and find that in dying, there is life. There's going to be infinitely more life found in coming into God's presence in prayer than there is in five extra minutes in bed or five more minutes of friends or the office. See that Jesus prayed. Secondly, I want to think about why Jesus prays. See why Jesus prays. What's going on? Now, we don't here get the content of Jesus' prayers explained. We do sometimes in Scripture. And almost always when, when they, there's a bit of content given, Jesus is interceding for people. He's praying on behalf of other people. Now, there's lots of ways to pray. And as we will see in the Psalms, a kind of rich diet is going to make us healthy as people. 
We can praise God. We can lament. We can confess sin. Jesus obviously wouldn't be doing that. But let me focus on the, on the idea of intercessing. In other words, coming before God on behalf of others. Jesus very often prays that way. John 17, the longest prayer of Jesus in the Bible is all about that. He prays for his disciples. He prays for, for you and me, for those who believe in him many years afterwards. And I suspect that's what's going on here. Because of the, the situation Jesus is in, look what he's surrounded by. He looks out around himself. He looks back on the last day or two. What has he seen? He's seen immense suffering. Jesus sees the world clearly. He sees immense suffering. We've seen already the people brought to his door for healing every type of disease and illness. He's healed Peter's mother-in-law. He's cleansed a leper or is about to. Suffering, no doubt. The suffering of the world around him would drive Jesus to his knees in prayer. And of course, it is meant to do that for us too. As we see the suffering, if our eyes are open to the suffering of the world around, it's meant to move us to bring these concerns to the Lord God, not to either despair or just kind of distraction. Can't cope with all this awful stuff. So again, I'll numb myself with TV or sport or whatever it may be. But I suspect for most of us, that, that, that is the thing that moves us to prayer. We hear of someone getting ill who we care about or some disaster crisis that the WhatsApp group pings. And actually, we are willing to pray for those things. They do move us. They grab our hearts. But it's not just suffering, I think, that, that, that Jesus sees all around him in Mark 1. It's also Satan and sin. Satan and sin. If we'd read even earlier in Mark's gospel, one of the first things that happens to him is he goes into battle with the devil. Mark 1, 12. The spirit drives Jesus out into the wilderness. He's in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan. The other gospels flesh that out more. But Jesus sees there is a spiritual battle going on. For him, it comes at times in the, the opposition of people who are demon possessed. But Jesus sees that the world is not just physical matter. There is a spiritual warfare going on. And he sees, too, that, that, that sin, that sin is our main enemy. Again, I'm not going to pick through all the stories, but take the, the paralytic. Uh, the last story we read in chapter two, as, the, as the, the friends lower the paralyzed man through the roof. What does Jesus see? Of course he sees someone who cannot walk. And yet he looks at him and says, son, your sins are forgiven. Verse five. That is incredibly cruel. Uh, kids, imagine um, you're rushed out of school tomorrow uh, with your friend who's broken their leg and you, you, you run to the hospital, you get put in the ambulance so you can be there with your friend uh, and you get to the hospital and the doctor comes and sees your, your friend and his leg sticking out at a weird angle uh, and the doctor says, I forgive you. You'd be furious, wouldn't you? What do you mean? You, who are you to forgive us anyway? But also sort his leg out. That's what really matters. Never mind all that spiritual stuff. That can happen. Another, sort the leg out. Jesus sees things clearly. Our biggest danger, our biggest threat, our biggest curse is sin. And he cares about it. No doubt that moves him to pray. As we look around the world, again, can I ask this this morning? Are we seeing the world as Jesus sees it? Not just the suffering, 
but the spiritual warfare out there, satanic opposition, and the sin in our own hearts, and the sin that corrupts the world. Or has our entire prayer life just been reduced down to essentially a kind of list of medical ailments? The more you see the world through Jesus' eyes, the more it's going to move you to, to pray. And nothing terrifies the devil more than prayer. The Bible is punctuated, particularly the New Testament, with commands to Christians to, to wake up, to realise there is a war going on. It's not something you can see. Horror movies, the devil pops up in sort of flames or whatever, or burning skulls or whatever it might be. But it doesn't work like that. The devil's job, his only job, his only desire really, is to get between you and God. He might do that by tempting you so you pull away from God. Uh, he might... Uh, do that by lying to you. So you start believing lies like God doesn't exist or he's not safe or you can't approach him, whatever it may be. All sorts of tactics the devil might use, but his only thing is to pull you away from God. And that's why he hates prayer so much, because prayer is drawing near to God. 19th century, a guy called Samuel Tradrick said this, Satan dreads nothing but prayer. His one concern is to keep the saints from praying. He fears nothing from prayerless studies, prayerless work, or prayerless religion. He laughs at our toil. He mocks our religion. But he trembles whenever we pray. Fears nothing from prayerless studies, prayerless work, prayerless religion. It's pretty convicted words, aren't they? Why? Because prayerless studies, prayerless work, prayerless religion, is just humans trying to go it alone. Satan's not scared of you. Of course he isn't, or me. But he trembles before someone who is connected to the Lord God Almighty. And so part of our job is to stay connected, as it were. To realise we're living life in the presence of God and serving him at every moment. He is Lord and Saviour every moment. And therefore we've access to him through Christ at any moment. So alongside that idea of carving out five minutes in the day, can I encourage you, to send up what I was taught as a teenager were called arrow prayers. I understand in Sunday school you call them popcorn prayers, maybe. I'm not sure one of the children will have to explain to me afterwards if that's right or wrong. Uh, children, I wonder if you know the story of Nehemiah in the Old Testament. Nehemiah was the cupbearer to the king, this mighty king. He was captured and he was in uh, a long way away from home. And he heard that his home city, Jerusalem, was in ruins and he was sad about it. And the, the king said to him, why are you so sad? And Nehemiah, who's telling the story, says, I prayed and answered the king. And it gives the answer. You know, he's sad about his home city. You could read over it really easy, easily, but those little words there, I prayed and answered. He hadn't got time there to fall on his knees. Great Yahweh, King of kings, Lord of lords, I beseech. No, he hasn't got time. He must have just very quickly in his head said something like, Lord, help me, and then started speaking to the king. Prayer does not have to always be many words. We can send a quick arrow into heaven. Again, children, imagine, you've seen those sort of archers in the olden days or... The elves in Lord of the Rings. Pull an arrow out of the quiver. Fire it quickly off. You can say a prayer in one sentence. Uh, I read a very helpful book recently uh, by a pastor uh, down south in Cambridge. In fact, he used to be a pastor for a bunch of you, I think. Um, a book on prayer. And, and he talks about um, helping people get back into praying, but by using one very short prayer, either the Lord's Prayer, or if that's too long, 
It's something that's often been given the name, the Jesus Prayer. It's one of the oldest prayers kind of recorded through the history of the church. It's just one line. Lord Jesus Christ, Son of the living God, have mercy on me, a sinner. It's really words taken from Jesus' parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector. But, but his suggestion was, if you just feel nowhere with prayer, that then throughout the day, just, just stop. And even if, it's just, even if it's just one sentence, pray that prayer. Lord Jesus Christ, Son of the living God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Now, the idea isn't to use it as some sort of mantra, like some sort of Eastern religion where you kind of chant it and get into some, I don't know, headspace of perfect meditation or bliss or something. That's not the idea at all. But rather, it is one short biblical prayer that we can pepper the day with. That reminds us that Jesus is Lord, asks for his mercy in whatever situation we're in, perhaps mercy to fight sin um, if we're about to be tempted, perhaps mercy not to forget him if we've got very self-censured during the day, perhaps mercy for forgiveness if we've done something we know we're ought not to have done. But either way, it's asking the Lord Jesus for mercy. Just pepper the day with that. And perhaps some of the mercy you'll be asking for is the mercy to learn how to pray more and more regularly and more fully. Do we see the world as Jesus sees it, not just the suffering, but the satanic opposition and the sin that ruins? See that Jesus prays, see why he prays. Finally, therefore, just pray, just pray. It's the last thing I want to think about this morning, just pray. Prayer is simply bringing people to Jesus. All we've looked at so far is Jesus praying, Jesus as man. But of course, he is also the God to whom we pray. And that's why I included this story of the paralytic in the reading, Mark chapter 2. What the friends do is almost an acted out prayer. Now, there's loads in this passage we're not going to talk about. Okay, so it's not really a sermon exactly uh, on those uh, dozen verses. But what the friends do is, as it were, physically act out the discipline of prayer. They have a friend who has a desperate need and he cannot help himself. He is paralysed. To be paralysed means he can't walk. He can't go to Jesus. It's no use them saying to him, hey, Jesus is in town. He's over at Capernaum. Why don't you head down? Because he can't. He can't move. So what do they do? They pick him up and carry him to Jesus. And they are determined to get there, even though it means climbing a roof, kicking in the ceiling and lowering him down. Because they know and are convinced the one person in all the universe who can help their friend is Jesus. Is there a better picture of prayer in the Bible? When we have this conviction, the one person who can help, who has the power and the compassion, is the Lord God Almighty, the Lord Jesus Christ. Then we do as the friends do. We, as it were, pick up our, our friends, pick up those in need, those in need of salvation, of strengthening, of sanctification, whatever it may be, and we bring them to Jesus. Now, prayer is that simple. It comes from conviction that he is good. Uh, a while ago, uh, we've done some teaching on uh, uh, the, the, the person of Jesus, on his work, on who he is. And someone said to me afterwards, um, now we've done a load of stuff on Jesus, can we do a bit of stuff on the character of God? That was a well-meant question. But it's an interesting question, isn't it? Now I've learned about Jesus... Can we now learn about the character of God? 
see what the answer is. You've just been learning about the character of God. Jesus is God in the flesh. There is no other God hidden behind Jesus, a secret one hiding in the heaven with a totally different character. The word became flesh, revealed what God is like to us. And so when we see Jesus meeting people in the Gospels or people coming to Jesus or people bringing their friends to Jesus, we are seeing what God is like when those in need come to him or are brought to him. We see the compassion, the power of Christ. We're seeing the compassion and the power of God himself. And that should drive away one of the main reasons I suspect many of us don't pray. And that is we fear getting close to God. We fear drawing near. It's been in our DNA ever since the Garden of Eden. Do you remember, children, what does Adam do when he sins? When he does something wrong and he knows that it's wrong, he flees from God and he hides in a bush. It's mad. You can't hide from God in a bush. But he just knows he's got to get away. He's got to get away. He's terrified that coming to God will be death for him. And so he runs and he hides. And ever since we've been doing the same thing, hiding from God, fearing that if we come to him, we'll be met with a sword rather than open arms. Someone said to me a few months ago about busyness, which I find really helpful. I'll see if I can explain it this morning. He said, busyness, it's not your problem, it's your solution. Busyness, it's not your problem, it's not your solution. By which he meant, I, I can complain about being too busy. I haven't got time to pray. I haven't got time to go to God. I've got too much to do. I... No, 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 Jonty. The reason you are so busy and not going to God is because you want a defense against God. You want something to distract you, to keep you away from him. Now, I wasn't consciously thinking that. Okay, it's not like I was getting up and saying, look, I've got to be busy because I don't want to have to pray. But this friend was digging deeper. Busyness. It's not the problem. It's our proposed solution. It's our defense against God. What I really fear is going near him. And of course, prayer is drawing near to God. And so as long as I can keep myself busy, I can sort of at some level justify myself for not praying. All sorts of things we use as defenses against God. But there is no need because he's a God full of grace and love, full of compassion. the more we're convinced that we can come out of the bush, that God will welcome us with open arms, the more we'll delight to pray. God is more keen to answer your prayers than you are to ask. Do you believe that? God is more keen to answer your prayers, to give, than you are to ask. Why can we say that with such confidence? Because of the cross. Jesus comes ultimately not just to heal and drive out demons and preach, but he comes to die. He comes to go to the cross. And on that cross to remove all the barriers, all the sin that would keep us from being able to safely enter the presence of God. All the reasons we ought to hide in the bush. He takes them on his shoulders. So we're now clear and clean. Once we trust him, we can come in safety. But here's the question. Who asked Jesus to go to the cross? It wasn't me, it wasn't you, it wasn't Moses, Samuel, Mary, Joseph. No one asked. Who would dare? Can you imagine two and a half thousand years ago, kneeling down and praying, Lord God, 
I'd like you to come down, become one of us and die for me. You wouldn't dare, would you? And why not? Because who would think God would be willing to do that? No one asked. But he was willing. He came unasked because he wants to bless. He wants to forgive. Perhaps you're not a Christian. Let me say to you, the reason you're not a Christian, I don't know you. God's word would say to you, the reason you're not a Christian, it's not because the evidence isn't clear or you're too bright. It's because you haven't understood it's safe to come to God, that he will forgive you. Fear is still keeping you away. You're distracting yourself, deceiving yourself in all sorts of ways. And you must turn from them. It is a bad thing to run from him. But he will welcome you. He will welcome you. That prayer I quoted at the beginning finished like this. Although I'm constantly looking for help, no one takes me by the hand. When I weep, they do not come to my side. I utter laments, but no one hears me. I'm troubled. I'm overwhelmed. I cannot see. Is that you? No one's helping. No one's coming. Jesus comes down. Weeps with us. Weeps at the grave of his friend. Hears our laments. Takes us by the hand. Christian, it is the safest place to be, to come into the presence, to draw near to God, who invites you to call him Father, if you come in the name of Jesus. So don't wait till you're clean and tidy. Don't wait for a day that you've not sinned enough that you can come close. That day will not come. And if you think it's come, you're just wrong. But the gospel says to you both, you are far worse than you ever imagined. So you must come to pray. You're not going to make it on your own. But at the same time, you're far more loved than you ever dared dream. And so you're far more welcome than you ever realized. Draw near, stumbling, weak, weary. Draw near, confused. Draw near, conscious of your sin. Draw near, sometimes unsure quite what to ask. But draw near, confident in the name of Jesus, that your Father will hear you. Whether that's for the first time today, and you need to come and ask for mercy, for God to welcome you into his family. He will hear you in the name of Jesus. Or whether it's a waking up, come and he will welcome. Let me pray. Father in heaven, uh, it's a wonderful thing that we can speak to you, the Lord of the universe. It's a privilege we take for granted and often, uh, if we're honest, despise. We pray you'd forgive us for the times we thought you are unapproachable. We've not believed your word about your goodness. And we pray so much that you would turn us into men, women and children who delight to come into your presence, who know at your right hand there, are, uh, there is fullness of joy. And so we pray, whatever our situation, that our first response uh, would be to cast all our anxieties, our thanksgivings, our praises, our requests on you. Pour your spirit on us, therefore we pray, our Father, for we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.